0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Jeffrey Breslow, author of A Game Maker's Life. Starting with a literal bang, Jeffrey Breslow tells the gripping account of how the inventor held his company together after an employee opened fire in the Marvin Glass & Associates Conference Room in 1976. The gunman killed two of the Chicago firm's partners and an employee and critically wounded two more employees before killing himself. He missed taking a bullet only because the gunman didn't see him. The gunman left behind a hit list of 14 names. Jeffrey later learned his name was second on the list. After the shooting and despite his youth, his partners voted him in as managing partner. Thrust into leadership by default, he faced incredible challenges, including consoling the families of the victims, dealing with the staff's PTSD, and rebuilding a sense of safety and morale. Jeffrey spent more than 41 years inventing toys and games, including Simon, Operation, Gestures, the Evil Knievel motorcycle, and many more, and is on the only toy designer to win the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval twice. He was inducted into the Toy Industry Hall of Fame in 1998. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Nice to have you on today.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for that long and very nice introduction.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's talk about it because we're talking about 41 years later. Uh, a lot has transpired during that time, but this was kind of this was the jumping-off point for you. Um, as I understand it, in the book, uh, where you know you had to, as I said, I don't want to repeat the intro, but like you had to get everything together, and then you were became like an uh, an icon in the toy industry. So how did that happen? What how, what was it? Let's begin, start at well, the beginning. <clears throat> yeah, when
1: when this tragedy happened at our studio, obviously. It was a huge shock because it wasn't somebody from the outside. It was an employee that worked for us for seven years. He was an electrical engineer. He was a quiet guy. Nobody realized what was going on in his head. And when this happened, it was, it was quite extraordinary. We had almost 70 people working for the company. And with family and everybody else, we probably supported close to a couple hundred people. And it was a successful business. So there was no way we could stop the business when this, when this happened. And and so this happened on a Tuesday and we had funerals all week. And what actually shocked me is that about half the employees went to Al Keller's funeral. They said that wasn't the guy who was here, even though it was. Uh, I didn't go to his funeral. But, you know, know, that's what you you know, Jeffrey,
0: that's what you hear. I I mean, you sort of. You know, this happened in this particular context in the toy industry, in your business. But you hear the same kind of thing when we hit, you know, the school shooting sometimes. Maybe we're getting a little more savvy about it. But, you know, he was a quiet guy. I never thought he could do anything like that. This guy was an engineer, as you say. Uh, So this seems to sometimes there's kind of a pattern to that kind of, of behavior. And how you handled it and what you had to do, I think, is really relevant to what we need to do today as well if we want to move forward when we have these atrocities, which we seem to be having all the time.
1: There is is no question, but you have to move forward. I mean, you can't let that define your life for the rest of your life. You have to move on, as horrible as it is. You know, I ended up running the company because nobody else wanted to do it, and the one fellow who wanted to do it, uh, the other partners didn't want him to do it. So I ended up, as the youngest partner, I was 33 years old, being put in the position of the, being the managing partner of this company. And, uh, you know, I wasn't prepared for it at all. You know, I mean, I never envisioned myself doing that, especially under the circumstances.
0: And so that's I was a lot of pressure for a young man in his early 30s or in his 30s. Big time. A lot of uh, pressure. Uh, how did you handle that? How did you move forward? Well, I, I, we know I was that able you did, to somebody, how do it. Yeah.
1: Well, through somebody, I was able to get in touch with a psychologist who had experience with group trauma like that, crashes, airplane things, and everything else. And, and I met with him over the weekend, and he said that he would come to the studio when we opened it up Monday morning and, and spend as much time, whether it's a week or two weeks, uh, with people in the company. And uh, what he said. Uh, is that you have to talk about it over and over again. Why you didn't get killed. I stepped out of the office for a phone call. Somebody was in the bathroom. Somebody just missed them. And and if you don't go over it and talk about it, you're not going to be able to resolve it in yourself. He said, be careful of people who say, I don't want to talk about it, because they're going to struggle with it later on. And and it was exactly opposite of what I would have thought about doing. And and as it turned out, the, the therapy is to talk about it. Why you weren't killed. Why... Uh, this didn't happen to you. And, so you know, is it like age, you're talking
0: about having survivor's guilt? That's, you know, one of the terms. You know, that
1: they... I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say it was survivor's guilt. I, I don't know that he, he used that. I mean, I, I don't know that that's what it was. I mean, that's not my background or anything. But I just listened to his advice, and his advice seemed to help us quite a bit. Uh, I don't know what I would have done without him. I really have no idea what I would have done a long, long time ago. You know, I mean, it was just uh, the fact that it happened in the studio and the fact that it happened with somebody who was an employee of the studio it, it made, made it all different. You know, it wasn't somebody on the street that came in and broke in. And, you know, so it was, you know, but fortunately, we were able to get together. Everybody pitched in and we ended up making the business even more successful than it was before. You know, it was, uh, it, and we were lucky enough to come up with Simon, my partner Howard Morrison. Within uh, a year or so, came up with the idea for Simon, and that was a huge success for our company, and, and it led to many other things that we did that were very successful at the time.
0: How did you figure out who was going to work with you and who would be able to go forward with you in this way by talking and being able to get it all out rather than hiding, you know, or I don't know, maybe hiding well, is the right word, but in yeah.
1: Well, the, the only one who really left was, was the partner who wanted to run the company, and he he said he had all kinds of psychological things, and I, and, and so he never came back. That was the, the one. Uh, one of the employees that was uh, wounded, uh, the bullet severed his spine, and he was three months in the rehab hospital, and he came back to work in a wheelchair. So he worked for us for many years, uh, moving around the studio in a wheelchair, so the Memory of what happened was always visible. It wasn't, you know, he was there. He was a designer. He was, so he was still part of our organization. So, uh, you know, uh, you, you couldn't erase that. It was still present.
0: It was a visual. You could see it. It wasn't just, it, it was right. the emotional, but you had, there was the picture. This is what happened. So yep. you got the firm back in business. And as I said in the beginning, well, in the it, intro,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you know, giving you all the credit all, all yeah. of us all of all us of got it back in business yeah. I, I, I refuse to take credit for for okay. getting it back in business okay everybody helped get it back in business i mean it it was the whole the work of everybody in the place that made it happen. I was just the guy you know they gave the job to but uh it it was it was a very successful business it was a fun business to do it was a creative business uh, i mean what what could be more fun than designing toys and games to entertain and teach children. I, I mean, yep. what kind of career he could they ask for that does that every single day? So we, we all felt lucky that we had a job that we loved, that we were good at doing, that had a purpose to it, and, and we move forward. I mean, it,
0: It's also it, the opposite of no exactly what the tragedy was about. I mean, you have this horrific tragedy, and on the other hand, it happens to be that this business is just related to joy and happiness and fun, fun and games, right? So that's the, yes, the, the exactly. really the yeah one eighty from that. So okay, yeah. we won't give you full credit for it, but a lot of credit for it. And uh, <laughs> uh, it, obviously, it was a very successful business. So let's. What about the business itself and how you you became the sort of the king of of of, of games? I guess um, you know well, you refer to as the boy the, genius. The, um, yeah.
1: Well, so I, I had I had mentors in my life, and I'm a big believer in mentors. Uh, and the first one I had was a high school art teacher because I was a very poor student in high school. I had one A, and that was in art, and, and I <clears throat> was not a very good student. Uh, and then I ended up going to a small school and uh, was on terminal probation. Uh, I was failing college after my first year, but I took a trip to University of Illinois. And, and I met somebody who became my mentor for 65 years. He was a Ed Zagorski, an industrial design professor, and taught me about design and uh, changed my life. And he ended up mentoring me. Uh, he died a year and a half ago at 99 and a quarter. <laughs> okay, and, <laughs> He
0: almost made it well, to 100.
1: Well, yeah, but but, he, but he, said, he said he was a wonderful man. He said if you ask a little child how old you are, they say I'm, three and a half on four and three quarters. He said, when you get over 90, you can start using fractions again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he did make it to a hundred, but he, he was a dear friend. He mentored me my whole life. He was responsible for me getting into the toy business. And, uh, I was very lucky that I had somebody like him. And I ended up doing mentoring programs in Champaign for many years as a result of it. And I learned a lot about mentoring and that you, you have to, the mentee has to go after a mentor. Uh, I, he talked to me for 20 minutes and I walked out of there and said, I need to be industrial designer. I have to transfer to Illinois. He had no idea what he did to me in 20 minutes. I, I was just another young kid coming in. He's telling me about design and everything else, but that changed my life. It's, and So there and was a chemistry.
0: Yeah, there's a chemistry obviously that was going on between the two of you, but mentoring seems to be a, a theme, obviously, that you just brought up. And when I hear about people or interview people who are successful in similar ways that you are, they always seem to have a mentor, someone who had an impact as the, like you're describing your mentor 60 plus years. You're not in it alone. Clear. Yeah.
1: Oh, no, I, I believe that's very powerful. But, but the thing I learned is that you have to go after somebody. Okay. He's not just, he, he wasn't looking to mentor me. He just talked to me, another kid, and everything else. He had no idea. He had no idea how he affected me that day. No idea. But but I knew how he affected me. And then once I got into his class, it took me a year. I actually had to start over as a freshman. So the first year and a half of college went down the drain. I started over again as a freshman in in the School of Fine and Applied Arts. And he was a sophomore uh, design teacher. So I didn't get to him until another year. But uh, it was worth waiting for.
0: So the lesson is, I guess, and uh, probably a lot of kids need to listen or hear this, is that you, know, you cannot be doing so well in school. You can be, as you say, flunking out or doing very poorly. But then if you're, I guess, be aware that these opportunities exist and take advantage of it and, and then go with it, like this interview with this. Well, you, yeah.
1: you, you really are in control of your own life. You know I mean you really are in control of your decisions that you make and a lot of stuff happens by chance you know if I didn't get the champagne that weekend if I didn't walk down that corridor if I didn't see the display if he wasn't in his office if 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 you know so you have a lot of control but things happen as to which way you make a turn if I didn't answer a phone call I wouldn't be talking to you right now so mm. you you think you're in control of your life but there are many things that happen but but you still uh, I, I mean, I believe that the harder you work, the luckier you become, you know. I, I believe that, you know, if you want to catch the bus, you have to be on the corner. So you have to have an awareness of, of where you are. But stuff still happens that you do not have control over.
0: What kind of advice would you give? And this is, I, started, I I don't know if I alluded to it. I started talking about it at the beginning of the interview. But what about, like, what's happening now? What kind of advice would you give to those who are suffering from traumatic uh, uh, incidents well, like you had, and then you know, you uh, give a I, I, what, I like know. in the I'm schools. Not, for, uh, it, well, but you are because you've had that experience. I don't mean as a psychologist or a social worker, but just in your own experience because these kinds of tragedies are happening every all the time, and there are those who just fall behind and, and can't deal with it, and those who are who go ahead like you did. Like, what do you do when you mentioned this engineer who, who killed? all these people in his own business. You're having students who are killing other students. they are students or have been students in that school. Um, how can, do you have advice for, for families? Well, it, it is, yeah.
1: well I, I think what's going on in our country is, is certainly uh, terrible to some extent. I mean, that, that uh, crime is rampant. I think that the, the one responsibility of any country is to keep, keep its people safe. You know, I mean that—that's the number one thing that a country needs to do. So it's very scary today. I don't want to get involved in talking about politics and stuff, no. but it's scary. But how you deal with these tragedies is—is is beyond difficult. How do you deal with young people being killed in schools? I mean, it's—it's it's just how do how do as a young age how do you grow up afraid of school, afraid of other things? I, I'm not—I'm really not qualified to talk about how that how you can deal with that. I mean, I'm only can talk about how I dealt with it and how my employees and partners dealt with it. And that was still 47 years ago. It was, it's a lot more common today than it was back then. It just is, which is very sad. Commentary.
0: Yeah, it's more common, but the, the emotional impact is the same as, as it was. without question. Ago. Yeah. So, okay. So, but now you were, you know, toy industry hall of fame. How did you get into the toy industry? Industry Hall of Fame.
1: <laughs> well, I I got in with my my two partners. We were all nominated at the same time. The toy industry uh, had a you know a, an organization that represented the industry. We had meetings and everything else, and and they started honoring people a long time ago. And the, and the honorees, my boss Marvin Glass was honored. Uh, Ruth and Elliot Handler were honored from Mattel. The Hansenfelds were honored. But the one criteria when they started this out is that you had to be deceased in order to be honored, okay? Oh. <laughs> and then uh, a terrific guy by the name of Bernie Loomis, who ran uh, was a big executive of Mattel and Kenner and a uh, brilliant toy guy, was uh, on the board of this organization. I was a member of the organization board as well. And he came up with the idea said, why don't we honor somebody while they're still around, okay? Okay, what a great idea that is. So he was the first one who was honored because it was his idea and he needed to be honored and he didn't want to wait until he died to be honored. So that's how it came. And we, myself and my two partners, were kind of voted in uh, by the organization. That's how it happened. And and we were voted in because we were uh, the best toy design studio uh, in the world at that time. I mean, there were other people that were doing what we were doing, but... My boss, Marvin Glass, invented the business of independent toy design. Uh, He was the first one, and he did this in the late 50s. And he tried manufacturing toys. He kept losing his ass. He said, I don't want to do that anymore. And he looked at the book business. He looked at the record business and said, I want to do that in the toy business. I want to design toys, license them to a company for royalty." And it was a very unique concept because most toy companies had their own designers. And why would they license something from an independent? But he started with Ideal Toy in the late 50s and was very successful. And he built this gigantic independent toy inventing company, Marvin Glass and Associates. And then there were other people that started doing the same sort of thing. So that that's how it all came about uh, from this one man who hired me and I worked for him for seven years. He died pretty young from uh, cancer and stroke, but he was my mentor also.
0: So several mentors, that's how you got to be in the toy industry, the Hall of Fame, and also get the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval twice. What does that mean? How do you get that? I don't know. I mean,
1: when I (laughs) I found out about that, I I mean, I have no idea how it happened. I mean, the two games, one was Ants in the Pants that I did 50 years ago that's Still selling today. It was one of my first ones, and the second one was Masterpiece, which was a board game with uh, art, and uh, Parker Brothers made it. and It was it was kind of unusual because it was introducing uh, young kids to the world of art. Uh, I went down to the Art Institute and I bought you know like you know forty postcards and brought them back to the studio and and made a board and said the uh, idea of the game was to buy and sell art. And then I had a second deck of cards that was value. In other words, so every game you had a paper clip, and you clipped a value, a hidden value to a piece of art. The next game, that piece of art might be a forgery. So every game was brand new. But what happened when an auction came up, uh, I'm holding a piece of art that's a forgery. I know it is. Nobody else does. And I'm, I'm encouraging people when they're bidding on, oh, no, it's worth a lot more than that. Now, somebody buys it from me they see it's a forgery. They have to keep a straight face because they're gonna try and sell it to the other two players at some point. So that the play of the game was really a lot of fun because it was buying and selling art and kids uh actually were looking at paintings, real paintings from the Art Institute of Chicago.
0: Yeah. That's a great idea. I'm picturing, did you wake up in the middle of the night with a light bulb? Oh my God, this is what I have to do. Or how did no, you what? Yeah.
1: No. I mean, I, I never woke up in the middle of the night with an idea. I, I had ideas at the studio, and everybody had ideas at the studio. And it, it, in, in ideas are a result of pressure. We have a client coming in. Okay, things start to happen. We've got a presentation. Creativity is driven by pressure. Whether you're writing a book, uh, making toys and games, uh, doing a TV show, a movie, this, that, it's all driven by deadlines and pressure. And I And I think creative people respond to that. And what Marvin did was if you work for him one one week and you had a mock-up of an idea, you brought it into the conference room. He didn't take it away from you. He didn't pitch it for you. You walked into the room and the client looked at it and said, nope, don't like it. Next. Okay. You walked out. Okay. Or you brought it in. The client said, that's fantastic. I love that. Okay. That's what you work for. You can't say, I'm going to give you a raise, be more creative. That doesn't work. That's not what drives a creative person it's It's the applause in front of a live audience. It's the band playing and, and people are screaming at the music. so that's what that's what drives creative people
0: uh, that's interesting because I've never associated necessarily creative people and pressure that pressure that and you're using drive well um, it, 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 yeah. it's the it's
1: it's the right kind of pressure and no, we couldn't have meetings every day we had to ebb and flow the meetings I mean you can't put that pressure all the time. But but that's uh, the deadline. That's what happens. And the other thing in the creative world, it's built on failure. You fail, you fail, you fail. Okay, way more than you succeed. Designing toys, making music, writing books, uh, you know, doing movies. You know, a movie studio makes twenty movies. Uh, Two are successful. The other eighteen pay. You know, so you have to have this mindset that everybody doesn't have. I mean, if you're a, a surgeon, a lawyer, an accountant, you can't fail too often. But in the creative world, you fail much more than you succeed. And you have to understand that. And that's how the process works for, for everybody.
0: Well, I mean, yeah. And I'm thinking of, you're right, you don't want the surgeon to fail too many times, or at least you don't want no. to be the one that he's <laughs> failing no. with no. or on. But I'm thinking of these billionaires, which I'm fascinated with, which. It sort of brings up what you're talking about, the all in reading their bi- autobiographies or biographies. Failure, failure, failure. They became so successful because they failed so badly in the beginning or along the way, and that that failure yep. and that pressure uh, pushed them ahead. Absolutely. And were, yeah, it, yeah. It, so it's
1: absolutely. Kind of, it's very important. I, yeah. I, I mean that. It, it is part of the process. And, and just to give you some numbers, we would generate in the course of a year, at Marvin Glasson Associates, six or 700 ideas, okay, that we would log in a book, start to work on, and then after two days say, nope, it's not so good. And, and of those six or 700, we would build prototypes of maybe 150, and we would pitch those. Maybe we'd sign 25 or 30 contracts, and maybe five or six would pay for everything. I mean, that's how it worked. And, and you had to be prepared for that. And, and when you had a young designer come in, you, you had to tell them, this is how it works. And, and you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in the idea. But at some point, okay, it's not a good idea. Let's do another one.
0: So you have to be able to let go. Well, there are two things there, I guess. It, some people just may not be emotionally fitted for that kind of a job because once they fail, they feel like it—that's it, it, their whole person has failed, not just the idea or what <laughs> they've done. <laughs> and you can't have that kind of a mindset as I'm listening to you. So you might not be the person for that. Job. Um, and well, I guess, yes,
1: yeah. I, I agree. You, you, first of all, you have to believe. Okay, when when you do something, this is going to be the greatest, the best, the this, the that. Okay, otherwise you wouldn't work on it. But at some point, it's not going to happen. I mean, I, I wrote this book, and, and I wrote it for a specific reason. Do I think it's going to be a best-selling book? You know, I mean, probably not. But I hope. I hope so. But but that's that's why you do things. But I'm prepared that that it's not. But, but I, I started it as a project basically for my grandsons. And, and I started it seven years ago. It's not something that I just did, you know. I, I actually started it that long ago. And I went through three editors before I came up with my final editor. So the, the process has been a failure along the way to get to where it is today. It just didn't come out like that. It was, it, and you, it was a learning process for me because I had never written a book before. You know, I, I, I had a friend uh, in the design, you know, who went to school with me and he had a very interesting career and everything else. And he knew I was writing a book. And he said to me, how do you write a book? I said, you get a piece of paper and you get a pencil and you start. OK, <laughs> it's not, you know, and then you go from there, you know. But the first thing is you got to get started. You know, you have an idea for a toy, a game, a doll, whatever, a, a song. You, you, you have to get started.
0: I think that's key, getting started, because many people have the idea, but they never get started, and they have a lot of ideas. Well, let's—they need to read your book. We only have a couple minutes left, so okay. Uh, and I've been talking to Jeffrey Breslow, and his book is "A Game Maker's Life." So Jeffrey, tell us, website we can go to uh, or website well, for it, more it information. Well, it is yeah. a
1: Game Maker's Life uh, website. You can go there. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, it it was on Amazon for the last couple of months, but the book just was released, uh, in the last couple of weeks. So you can get it on Amazon, you can get it at bookstores. Uh, I actually had a pretty exciting moment. I was in the Barnes and Noble three days ago, and I just walked in and said, do you have the book? And I didn't tell them my name and they said, Oh, we just got it in, you know, and I, they went over there and then they took pictures of me. I, so it was, it, it was a very exciting thing for me. And, uh, you know, I've, got, I, I've been a sculptor full-time for 14 years, and I sculpt every day. I'm actually talking to you from my sculpture studio. So when I left the toy business 41 years ago, it wasn't to sit around and play golf three times a week. Well, that's and good. That would have
0: been a, a waste.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a full-time sculptor now, and I have pieces uh, in, in different cities around the world. I did a big piece for Uruguay. Um, I'm going back down there, but I installed it in March. There's a whole story behind that, and it's, it's in the book as well. But uh, could I support myself with my sculpting? Not yet, but I'm working on it. But it's something that I do every day. When I'm in Chicago, I'm at my studio seven days a week, and I'm talking That's to great. you from my studio now.
0: Great story. Well, it's not just one story. It's many stories. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Great. Well,
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun talking with you.
0: Great to talk to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.